Good morning. Good morning. I need a new um, sign on intro thing. I don't know what to say other than good morning because it has not been a good morning. It has been a Monday. And I, how was it your Thanksgiving? It has been a Monday. Even, well, my Thanksgiving was great. Oh, good. Really good. Yes. And then my mom got home from our house. And the very next day, my mom has a giant 105-pound dog who's only a year old. And apparently the dog, there are some new horses on the block. And the dog got really excited and tried to go see the horses and pulled my mom over. And ultimately, she pulled all the skin off the back of her hand. And she said she could see the bones. So, what? Uh, Wait, was... do you mean horses literally? Or do you mean like just other yes. big dogs? No, horses. <laughs> They live next door. My mom used to have a horse, and they live next door. They live in this farm with a couple of acres, and the next-door neighbors have had one horse for a long time. And then all of a sudden, there were three horses in the paddock. And so the dog got so excited about the new horses. Yeah. Anyhow, all of that's in process. But other than that, we had a great holiday. Oh, well, good. I'm glad. That makes me happy. Some much-deserved R&R, I hope, and shopping, and... For sure. So my husband is out doing the Cyber Monday right now, which is funny because he'll sit in the car of where he wants to buy something and look at on the interweb. Then he'd go into the store so he can see the product because he doesn't trust the interweb is going to tell him the truth about it. <laughs> so oh, my God. He wants... To see the Cyber Monday deal, but then go inside and see the product before he buys the Monday deal so he doesn't have to worry about return. But, like, what, what he, we have to buy a mattress for one of our kids. And I get that. He wants to test the mattress. So he's Cyber Monday shopping, but then also trying to find that mattress so he can, like, sit on it and evaluate it. That's actually pretty funny. It sounds very on-brand for Ford, too. Listen, Ford is a lot of interesting things. Um, I was going to say, now that we're talking about Cyber Monday and Black Friday deals, we should also mention that we're doing a 30-day free trial of the Fertility Resort right now. Um, this kind of came up because in one of our recent support groups, you know, we were talking a lot about the holidays and how hard they can be to navigate for people who are going through infertility. And so... And all of our the members that were in that support group were like, I'm just so thankful we have a support group and that we have, you know, our mental health Mondays with, you know, Molly and Colleen. So Aaron and I got to thinking, well, we would really like to support as many people as we possibly can during the holiday season. So that being said, we are doing a free 30-day trial. Um, and all you have to do is just go to the fertilityresort.com and sign up for your trial. So yeah. That's right. And also let's mention that what's cool about it is not that it's a designated 30 days. It's 30 days from the time that you sign up. So if you don't sign up till December 20th, then you still have 30 days after the fact. So for people that are uh, strong closers, you know, end of the year. <laughs> there are people that are doing the uh, new year, new year stuff. New, new, new year, year, new you. you. <laughs> right. For those people who were like, okay, it's Christmas. I'm going to hit the gas. I'm going to drink champagne. I'm going to party like it's 1999. And then in January, I'm going to really start this whole 
fertility thing up again, um, it's great for them too because you get 30 days free to just get to know uh, what your options are and like help start figuring out what what kind of things you want to do for yourself in that new year phase. So take advantage of it, people. Definitely take advantage of it. Um, You'll get to tell your friends. Send an email. (laughs) And you'll get to just hear me and Aaron talk much, much more. (laughs) I guess you could say. (laughs) Okay, so today on the podcast, we actually have one of our licensed mental health therapists on our podcast today, Molly Casper, who is one of my dear friends, fellow IVF and fertility warrior. She is amazing, and she really takes a lot of time to tell us, you know, not only her story, she is a mama via embryo adoption to the most beautiful little boy Draper, but she also kind of gives us an inside look at what it's like to be a therapist who specializes in infertility and, you know, what that looks like as somebody who's been through the process and back again a multitude of times and how she helps her people navigate that journey themselves. Erin, any thoughts? Yeah. No, I think that's it. I just, yeah, Molly's uh hoot. Molly's interesting and funny and really candid. You know, she has mm-hmm. that great way of uh, ripping the bandaid and spilling the sure. beans. And it's funny without being intentionally funny. Yeah. So um, yeah. I just love that you know, she's like, I know all the things that I need to tell my clients. And then I have to tell them to myself too, because I'm also in it. And I just think that that's a really interesting perspective um, on, yeah, like the whole thing itself. So having to try to walk the walk, uh-huh. um, I think she lays it out pretty plainly. Like being a provider and being a patient are two totally opposing forces. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's also what makes her such a great therapist because she knows. She knows what it's like to be a patient and she knows every feeling that her clients are going through, you know? So I think that that's what makes her so super duper special. And I'm just so glad that she's part of the fertility resort team in general. So, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Well, you guys enjoy. All right, friends, take a listen. Here's Molly. <laughs> Why did I say it like that? Casper here joining us today. Hi, Molly. Hi. So good to see you guys. I know. Molly is a dear friend of mine and Aaron's and sister in so many different ways to both of us, actually. So it's really exciting to have her here with us today to chat. And it's funny, right before we started recording, we said, Molly said, we should have just set up recording equipment while we're at lunch drinking (laughs) wine. (laughs) And honestly, that's so true. But here we are. We'll try to mimic that in every way possible. That's right. Perfect. Okay, Erin. Yeah. 
I'm ready. I'm here. Is it a quiz? It sounded like a quiz. No, but I did listen to a podcast yesterday where um, it's a crime podcast and they do quizzes with each other. And it's really funny, actually. <laughs> like, do you think that this murderer, A, bought a mannequin off the side of the road and had it and kept it in its front seat or B, walked a ferret on a leash for many years of his life. Or that's C. hilarious. And it's like just randomly throughout the episode. And I was like, that's hope. that's funny. I laugh at this. <laughs> it sounded like the setup for Truth or Dare. It's like, oh my God, she's going to ask me to do something. I'm oh, sorry. No, wasn't doing that. Truth, <laughs> yes. Anyway, we're here to talk about mental health and perfectionism and fertility and pessimism and how all of those things relate. Mm. Um, I, for one, know I'm guilty of all of it. Um, I am definitely a perfectionist. I for sure have fertility problems. (laughs) And I'm definitely a pessimist because of all Mm -hmm. of it. So Mm -hmm. Join the club. (laughs) Yes. Um, And so Molly also has uh, personal experience with all this, but like you hear in the intro, what's interesting about Molly is she's also a licensed mental health counselor. So really wanted to dive in because it seems like when you come against fertility challenges, especially prolonged ones, I feel like it, there's no way it doesn't reshape your whole process about how you view the world and how you communicate with other people. And so I, we were just really curious and, you know, wanted to dig in with her about how, even how her therapy style changed as a result of infertility stuff. So I think this is going to be really fun because she's coming at it from both a professional angle and a personal angle, which is a pretty awesome viewpoint, I think. How many years have you been practicing, Molly? I've been practicing for uh, 13 years. Okay. So you're a vet, right? You've been around the I suppose. Block. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So here, Brian, what's our, what do we have? What, because I don't want to get like, I don't want to go to the place I'm not supposed to go to yet. I mean, you can go to any place you want. Well, Molly, do you want to tell us a little bit about your personal fertility yes. story? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll try to make it brief. Um, my husband, I've been together for 13 years and, you know, got married, thought we'd wait a couple of years and start trying. And it just wasn't happening after about a year. We went to a fertility doctor and really walked away with not many answers. Um, did some treatments. Um, Dr. Aaron suggested I possibly have endometriosis. So I had that surgery and I did have just stage, I think two or three, I don't really remember endometriosis. Um, that was kind of it. And then basically, um, started doing IVF and we went through four retrievals and six transfers. And I ended up pregnant four of the six times and I miscarried every time. And after that fourth miscarriage, um, the doctor who I was seeing basically said, we can't do this anymore. Like you've either got to do, um, an egg donor a traditional adoption or embryo adoption. And that was, I mean, just I, so devastating and a place I'd never thought I'd ever be. I just always thought that IVF worked. It this sounds stupid, but I never, it never really occurred to me that IVF wouldn't work. It's not stupid. Um, that's what you're sold. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of I, one of the, the problems with IVF is that it's been sold as this like, it's everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it's not yeah. clear knee deep in it. You're like, oh, this isn't as easy as I thought. 
Absolutely. And being, I mean, maybe I don't want to get ahead of being a perfectionist and a control freak and a hard worker and I get what I want. I mean, it was like traumatic hearing like it's over, it's over for you. And so um, we weighed our options. I knew I really wanted to experience pregnancy. It was really important to me. And so um, we really probably would have loved to do an egg donor, um, but it was just so expensive. It costs so much just to purchase the eggs. And then you have to pay for all the fees and um, the hospital fees and you know fertilization, all that. And then you go through a transfer. And that was like so much after the, you know, 150,000 or whatever we'd already spent. Whereas with embryo adoption, it was, it was cheaper and it was quicker. And at that point I'm like, I want a baby and I want a baby, you know, seven years ago. And so we chose embryo adoption, which a lot of people are not familiar with. So basically um, other couples will go through, uh, go through IVF successfully have children from their cohort of embryos and they don't want to discard them. And so people can't adopt them. And so we legally adopted three embryos. I, we put into my first transfer and we ended up pregnant with my son. And so February of 2022, I'm going to cry. <laughs> um, I had my son via embryo adoption. And so I was pregnant and carried him the whole time and gave birth and he's neither of our DNA. And so it's so wild and crazy. Um, and then we had one embryo left. And so just this past um, May, we transferred the last embryo and I got pregnant and miscarried. So here I am, you know, 10 or whatever, nine years into this, I have a child, but I still consider myself like infertile. I still consider myself like in this infertility world. I'm still, you know, having losses, I still have no control over having more children. So that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah. That's pretty <laughs> sucky. I mean, yes. Yay. Wonderful. Yeah. Have a beautiful, healthy Absolutely. boy, but Absolutely. It, I don't know. I think when you envision your life being a big family and you know, mm-hmm. you just, you decide the way you want that to go. And so even though you've had one, mm-hmm. I hate it when people say, well, at least you had one. I mean, yes, at least yeah. you were able to have a child, but that doesn't really replace the grieving for the fact yeah. that you wanted three or. Of course I wanted better. four. When my husband and I got married, our deal was four. Like that was our agreement. That's what we agreed to in life. And so I have one and like, I love him so much. I mean, he brings me joy every day, but like, it doesn't feel, it's still not, not the outcome. I want it. Yeah. It's not what I, I always say. It's not what I signed up for in life. Like, this is not yeah. what I signed up for. A lot and of people so, too are really, they, they think about it from like, I didn't want my child to be an only child. I didn't want my child mm-hmm. to be the, the, you know, have to bear the responsibility of taking care of us. I wanted him to have a sibling. Yeah. So it's not like it's just this selfish. Mm-hmm. I wanted this many kids. It's like, I wanted my mm-hmm. sibling to have a person. And I think when there's adoption involved, that sometimes mm-hmm. is even bigger. You know, it, it represents mm-hmm. more to feel like they have someone that they're linked to in that biological way. I know a lot of people Absolutely. that adopt embryos, like they want to adopt several mm-hmm. because they want to be able mm-hmm. to produce siblings. So it's just a lot yeah. for sure. It really is. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, and yeah, as a therapist, I see, I get it, like experience so much of life with people. And so um, Aaron, you bring up a good point. One of my clients, she in her mid thirties, her, both of her parents died a couple years apart from each other. And she's an only child and seeing what she is going through, having to deal with everything on her own. And she has nobody and no family and she's not married. I mean, so even not just like, oh, I want more kids to have more kids, but thinking of my son being an only child, I'm like, 
there, you know, there's kind of some consequences of that for him in the future, potentially. Um, so there, there, there's a lot. It's, it's, it's so, so deep and sad, to be yeah. honest. How do you respond to the people? I feel like I struggle with this sometimes, and I'm not even like at that point yet, but the people who are like, oh, your prayers are answered, like you got what you wanted. Mm-hmm. How do you respond mm-hmm. to people like that? Because for some reason, that's really mm-hmm. triggering for me because yeah. this journey isn't what we wanted. Like this isn't, yeah. and the outcome isn't what we had hoped for. For some reason, that like really bothers me yeah. when people say that. Yeah, it really does for me too. And so like, I'm, I'm a Christian and this has really like rocked my faith. And mm-hmm. even though I have my son, like I still am like really wrestling with like my faith and stuff. And, um, when I got pregnant, um, you know, I did the, the Instagram, Facebook announcement that's all dramatic and all the emotional and so many people in the past. Oh, I shouldn't say this. Hold on. So many people, um, commented on like, Oh, your prayers have been answered. God answered your prayer. And this, I just, I just kind of ignore people when they say that, or I like, if it's in person, I'm like, Oh yeah. And then I go behind their back and I go like vent to my husband about it because here's how I feel. How I feel is like my son. Okay. This is crazy. My son was created in 2010. My son was created in 2010. If I was meant to have him, I could have had him eight years ago, nine years ago when I started this journey. Like I could have skipped a lot of heartbreak, a lot of financial stress, a lot of depression, a lot of darkness. If like I I could have had him so long ago, he existed. Hold on. I don't know that I'm making sense. I kind of feel like, no, like science did this. Like... God didn't answer my prayer because he existed a long time ago. God could have answered my prayer so long ago. So why didn't he? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if I'm making any sense or not, but I'm like, this isn't like God answered my prayer because my prayer was not to go through infertility for seven, eight years and have four miscarriages and now five. That was my prayer. And if I was meant to have him, I could have had him a long time ago. So where were you at, God? Like, this doesn't feel like an answer. It feels like an answer I could have had a long time ago. So it just doesn't feel like this answered prayer like everybody says it is well I think when you say that it's sort of like it's a conclusion your prayer mm-hmm. is answered you should be done now mm-hmm. and it's not yeah. right like you yeah. can be grateful for the fact that you were able yeah. to produce this baby but you can still be distraught that it took mm-hmm. everything that it took to get there and when people say like your prayers are answered it's like a finality of, yeah exactly mm-hmm. like okay there's no room for any other feelings yeah. you should be good don't right. talk about it anymore it's like and I don't right. think they mean it maliciously most people don't mean it maliciously but they've also probably never really thought about it it's like okay well your cancer's cured the end mm-hmm. you don't expect mm-hmm. someone who's had cancer to then be like okay cool that's in the past mm-hmm. done I'll never mm-hmm. talk about it again I'll never be worried about it I'll never mm-hmm. feel that feeling because my cancer is complete now so mm-hmm. to put that kind of expectation on someone who's gone through infertility mm-hmm. doesn't mean to be callous but it really is it is and it also feels like I don't think they mean well, to be callous but no, I think that they're trying to celebrate with you. I think mm-hmm. that they're trying to celebrate with you, but I, it's really hard. And again, like it's, I don't know, I, as a Christian, I'm like kind of all over the place in my faith right now, but what it feels like is 
well, if this was the answer to my prayer, why did I have to suffer so long when someone else got it the first time they prayed? Like yeah. what, like, what is it about me that like God didn't want to like mm-hmm. give me the answer to my prayer eight years ago? Why did you get yours right away? And so let's say it is an answer to a prayer. Well, that, that doesn't really feel great. Like, cause everyone right. else got theirs. And like, what was wrong with me? And why didn't I get that? It's really heavy. (laughs) (laughs) We can do a whole podcast on just the uh, perspectives of Christianity. (laughs) Seriously. It's, I think it's, I just think Christianity can be really hard to navigate sometimes when you're Mm -hmm. not served what Mm -hmm. you're suggested what you're sold yeah yeah well and I really could get on a soapbox with all of this the last thing I'll say about it is I think as someone who grew up as a Christian we're we're given the script of like if you pray about this then good things will happen right and it's there's literally a bible verse that says like if you ask you will receive and I'm like well that doesn't feel true anymore so if that doesn't feel true what does this mean about my faith in general you know and I haven't walked away from my faith I still believe in like so much and it's still like the core of like so much of me but it's certainly like kind of rocked my world and made me question things and um I don't know it's been it's been hard to work through that part and I'm still working through it even though I have my miracle like it still didn't make it all go away I think it's a good thing for anyone in any religion to not just accept with blind faith. I think it's okay to go, hmm, what did they really mean here? What is this, what is this trying to tell me? Is this something, is there a different interpretation of what this is? I think it's okay to have questions about your faith because I think it can really open doors and expand the way you see the world where a lot of times in religion, it's like, no, this is the way. And this is how you follow along until you switch churches. And then this other church is like, that's not the way. This is the way, yeah. right? So yeah. I think it's okay to kind of, you know, crack the windows and, and look like what's behind some of that stuff. I think sometimes your faith gets stronger. It's just different. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. It's funny you, like, we talk about this because your experience with your faith is exactly how I feel about my experience with my perfectionism. Because my whole life, I was told you work really hard at something, you work your ass Mm. off, you'll get it. Like, and so I did my whole life. And I did, I got everything that I wanted because I knew Mm -hmm. if I worked hard enough, I could do it except for infertility. Mm -hmm. That's the one thing it does not matter. It's not mattered how hard I work. I have not been able to get it. So that's really tried me and my perfectionism and Mm -hmm. pessimism Mm -hmm. and everything else involved in that. So on the same token that's how I feel and I'm sure that's how you feel too and you know in that regard as well are you a perfectionist um I always tell people I'm a recovering perfectionist (laughs) (laughs) I like that (laughs) where I think I definitely used to be but I think um a lot of you know even the therapy I've gone through and a lot of my journey to my own just like being a healthier person, I feel like I've come out of that a lot. Um, And please, please stop me if I'm not going down the right path. Um, But I think the root of perfectionism is often, not all the time, often low self-esteem and control. And sometimes both, sometimes one more than the other. And so I think for me, mine mine was both, um, you know, because of different life experiences, I never felt 
good enough. And it was always like, well, if I could be better or if this could be better, then I'll feel X, Y, Z. But then you do this thing and then it's, you still don't really feel good enough or pretty enough or skinny enough or this enough or whatever enough. So then, well, maybe if I do this other thing. And so I think that that's a lot of where my perfectionism, you know, came from, but then also control, like control feels safe, you mm-hmm. know, control feels like you can, um, be prepared and manage your own emotions and predict this. And so, um, I think as I've like healed from a lot of things in life, I, I joke that I'm a recovering perfectionist that, um, I'm doing a lot better. That's good. Does perfectionism go hand in hand with high achievers and overachievers? I feel like I see that together a lot, but I don't know if there are I'm, other versions of that I'm, out there. No, I think, I think they go hand in hand because of kind of what I just said. It's like, you think if you achieve this, then you're good, but you go, oh, that didn't really provide the outcome I thought it would. So maybe right. if I do a little bit more, then I'll feel really good. Well, that kind of fell flat too. And so, I mean, I, I had my bachelor's by the time I was 20. I had my master's when I was 22. And at 22 years old, I packed up my car and moved across the country to be a therapist. Like I am like, the, I was going to get my PhD. That's story. I'm going across the yeah. country to be a therapist. <laughs> yeah. At 22 years old, not to go party, not to go find myself. <laughs> I was like ready to help other people. And so like, I, and I was going to get my PhD, but I met my husband and I wanted to move to Florida to be with him. And so I didn't get my PhD and I cried and I was filled with like shame and embarrassment to tell my friends and family. Cause I felt like a failure. Like I felt like. I was flunking out of life. I mean, that just shows you kind of the depth of like how misconstrued my brain was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously nobody cared, but that was like the perfectionist in me, like even getting my master's at 22 years old was like, eh, that doesn't really feel as good as I thought it would. Let me do something else that will make me feel good. Make me feel successful. Make me feel like I've achieved something. And it's just this like goal you can never reach. And yeah. so uh, kind of like why I say I'm recovering, I feel like, I feel like I've, I've been able to let go of that goal and accept more of just like who I am and where I am and, you know, outcomes don't define like who I am. I feel like I've come a long way in that area, but sorry, this just kind of popped in my head. I think a lot of times people going through IVF are these high achievers mm-hmm. because some of the people I know in the infertility world who maybe I don't want to call them that they're not high achievers. Maybe they're more like type B personalities where they struggled with infertility, but I've had some clients and friends be like, you know what? It is what it is. I think I'm just going to adopt or, you know what? It's not the cards for us. We tried and like, they can just kind of accept their reality where I think a lot of the times the people who choose IVF are these maybe sometimes more type A um, people, people who struggle more with control. and things like that. Cause we're like, no, 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 this is not how it's going to be. I'm going to eat this or not eat this, or I'm going to cut out this, or I'm going to do this testing, or I'm going to do IVF and it didn't work once. Maybe it'll work a second time or a fifth time or an eighth time. Mm-hmm. And we are so desperate for control to create an outcome. And so I think those are often the people who do end up in the IVF world, not all the time, obviously, but sometimes that is, I think, um, the type of people that land in that situation. Yeah. In, in my population of people that I see, that's the majority. It's the solution-oriented, 
I'm doing mm-hmm. this. I'm coming to acupuncture because I'm told that it's going to facilitate what I'm trying to achieve. And I've been told mm-hmm. that you're going to help me relax as I facilitate what I'm trying to <laughs> achieve and go for it. But I do mm-hmm. have some others, but they are more the atypicals. And it's almost the opposite. I have some patients mm-hmm. that they just they just almost can't do any of it. Like all of it is so overwhelming that they feel like I don't know how to change my diet and I'm not good at that. So I'm not even going to try it. I don't know how to exercise Mm -hmm. and I'm not good at that. So I'm just not even going to try it. And they're kind of on the opposite side. They're just like, I'm not really in control of this. The doctor just tells me what to do and I do it. And that's it. Yeah. So it is interesting that it seems like there's a real um, dichotomy between those two groups. Mm -hmm. I just want to say, because this is always so funny to me, Molly always sticks out in my head because she's one of the only people not a lot of people that come to acupuncture that really hate it. <laughs> like she really hated it and she was verbal about it. And oh it my God. Thing and it was funny. And so I'd be like, okay, well, can I do this? And she'd be like, I hate that. I don't like it. I really, I'm not going to do that. Right. I mean, like, we had to like, most people like you just lay down and don't talk and I'm going to do what I'm going to do. But with Molly, like we had to make agreements. <laughs> oh my God. I love this. I had no idea. Oh yeah. It was, it was funny. like, it was not the experience most other people have. And I don't know if it's just, it is what it is, or if it's my tense controlling personality or what it was, <laughs> but I have like friends or clients. Like I send clients to Aaron all the time and they'll be like, oh my gosh, every time I leave, it's like, I just had a massage. And I'm like, are we going to the same Aaron? Like there's no way <laughs> that felt like a massage. Yeah. <laughs> because She just never I'm got there. Like, tr- no. <laughs> I'm like trying not to move because if I move, my muscle would hit the needle and it would hurt, <laughs> hurt or funny. something. I don't know, but it did not feel good. <laughs> Every once in a while, she'd say, well, that was okay. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Great. I finally <laughs> stopped. So what I would do is this is like how neurotic I am. Like it lay there and instead of like listening to nice spa music or just nothing, I'm listening to like murder mystery true crime podcast okay and I, I, think that too. And I was like Aaron I think I'm just gonna like <laughs> but I was like Aaron I think I'm just gonna like not listen to anything and like really try to relax and she felt she was like, very proud of me for just being in the quiet and that helped because I would like almost doze off and I got way more relaxed so I, I got better I still it was can't get nothing I really enjoyed yeah, I'm still, still listening to the podcast and like making a grocery list. I do oh. do that. Chats, <laughs> close I hear eyes. you. She's tired all the time, right? So I'm like, can't you just lay down and take a freaking nap? No, yes. I cannot. I can't do it. I have like too many. I'm like, I have 30, I have like 45 minutes. I got to get this shit done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got to kill two birds with mm-hmm. one stone here. I mean, you're not the only people, but it's, you know, most people at some point cross the bridge and then they're like, oh, I feel like I was judging here. It's time to go. Molly's like, oh my God, I've been in there forever. I thought you were never coming back. And then, (laughs) and then I have to pee like every hour. And so half the time I'm like, oh my gosh, what I have to pee, how much longer till she comes back. And so some of it was probably even my bladder being like, get me out of this room. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. But even that's the funny thing, like with type A people. Yeah, after some consistency with acupuncture, they do tend to like kind of look forward to this now. This doesn't feel like a waste of time the way it did in the beginning. 
So mm -hmm. I just, when somebody can't ever get there, I'm like, huh, what's going on that this person can't mm -hmm. like learn to appreciate this moment? I don't take it personally anymore. I've gotten way past that. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm sorry, you're just not right. Mm -hmm. You know <laughs> you're what? Just and not now right, that, that's all. Yeah. And now that you bring this up, I think, I wonder if I came to you now, if my experience would be different because, um, now, because and here's what I'll, I mean, I don't know. I'm curious what other people experience. So before I had my son, so I'm a therapist and on average, I would say most therapists see on average between 20 and 30 clients a week, um, hour long sessions. That's usually like a two to three hours during the day Two yeah, two to four hours, maybe for like uh, doing notes and, you know, admin type stuff. And I saw 45 clients a week. So I saw clients for nine hours straight all day, every day for years and years and years. And some of that was at the beginning, just like, I don't know, people wanted to, I, my schedule is full. And I just kind of kept letting more and more people come in. And then it became a financial thing. Like every hour I didn't work was money I was, I was missing. Money. And totally. yeah. And if I'm, you know, just about to drop 30 grand for another egg retrieval or something, I mean, every minute of my day was a dollar sign and I love my job. Like I sit here and I connect with people and I have like these really intimate relationships and I love seeing people grow and heal. And like, I just, I love what I do. So it didn't feel stressful. I knew that I was fatigued and tired all the time, but I kind of thought like, is this what being an adult is? I'm not really sure. Um, and then I had my son and, um, you know, in the first two or three months, you know, he's up a lot, not sleeping great. I was breastfeeding. Um, I'm like pumping all the time and breastfeeding. And, um, I told my friends, I said, I am less exhausted. I'm less exhausted right now than I have been for the last five years. Wow. And I think what I realized was my job while I loved it, and it was so fulfilling it was so mentally and emotionally taxing and draining. Like my soul was so tired. I could have had been on vacation. I could have slept 12 hours a night and I was always tired and my soul was just tired and having a baby, I was less exhausted and less fatigued. And so since having him, I went back to work and I just kind of started off part-time thinking I would eventually go back full-time and he's a year and a half old. And I will, I'm, I'm done. Like I work till two o'clock, four days a week and that's it. And I literally still to this day, he's never been a great sleeper. I'm still happier and healthier and less exhausted than I was before having him. And so I wonder all of this is a very long story to say, I wonder <laughs> if I came to your office today and lay there, if you would see a difference in me, that I am more relaxed, that my body is less tense because right. I literally feel different than I did years ago. Yeah. I think that we should do that experiment just to see, because I'm really deeply okay. curious right. about it. And I was like you though, when I, I mean, I had the twins and then I had Daphne and I was just so worried about our finances. And I was, mm -hmm. I think I loved getting away from the little ones at home. So I wanted to be at work. And so I filled up my days and I worked and worked and worked. And then it was about growing the clinic and about bringing in associates and all of these things. And then one day I would go through these episodes where I was just dead. I mean, I spend the whole weekend in bed every weekend, like busy week next week. I've just got to get ready. I was like, gosh, this is no life at all. And my husband finally said to me, 
I feel like all your, I feel like your patients get all the best of you and we get what's left over. Mm, and that hit sense. me like a ton of bricks. And that's when mm. I was like, okay, I have to make some purposeful changes. I really didn't know how. I did not understand how to get control of that situation because I had done it all through having our little kids and that like didn't mm. change it for me. So then I had to do like professional um, you know, counseling and business ownership classes and all those things to try to figure that out. And that really the the break really came with COVID. COVID is when mm. like I had permission to make the changes I needed yeah. to. And I could say to people like, I gotta go at two o'clock to pick up my kids because there's no school bus. And everybody mm. was like, Okay, we understand. That's fine. We're just happy that you're open. We're just happy that you're here. And so that moment in time I went and adjusted my schedule and then as COVID was becoming over locally and you know everybody was starting to add more things all my patients kept saying okay are you gonna stay here later and are you gonna come in more days and I was like no never never again am I gonna mm -hmm. do what right. I was doing because I'm so much better I'm happier I'm a better Absolutely. mom I'm, I think I'm a better practitioner because I'm not exhausted and I'm not halfway through my day thinking, Oh my God, I don't even care. Can we just get to the end of this? So mm -hmm. I get definitely, that. but I'm, definitely. I'm recovering. I don't think I was ever a mm -hmm. perfectionist necessarily, but I was a grand overachiever. I mm -hmm. just had to constantly be doing learning, getting a certificate, mm -hmm. growing, you know, I just was never satisfied. Yeah. I wasn't necessarily a perfectionist. I didn't have that crippling a lot of I'm actually pretty good at saying that's good enough <laughs> good enough that's yeah good enough. that's good enough yeah um so I don't know I, I my version of type a was a little bit different but it mm -hmm. still took a long time to feel like huh that's just not really benefiting mm -hmm. I hear that yeah I don't know if that's a life lesson that I think just a lot of us have to learn that but I also heard something about perfectionism is a version of coping with youth trauma adverse events mm -hmm. you know you learn to mm -hmm. become that overachiever person to take mm -hmm. control over circumstances that feel out of control and that you know, oh, when you see absolutely. super high achievers yeah people don't worry about those children because they don't have to you know like oh they're doing great mm -hmm. they're functional they look at all the things they're accomplishing but that it's its own sign mm -hmm. of something's not right here because most mm -hmm. children exactly. should not be desiring to perform at that high level all the time. That kind of blew mm -hmm. my mind because you don't really hear about that very much when you talk about adverse childhood. Like that's not a red mm -hmm. flag for people, but like, hmm, that's mm -hmm. pretty true. Most of the people I knew that were like super achievers all had things going on at home now that I think about it. It's pretty fascinating. Absolutely. That's definitely true. So what about pessimism I think of you as a pretty upbeat motivated person and then Brian and I talk about mm -hmm. pessimism as it relates to infertility mm -hmm. but also kind of just in general and like do perfectionism pessimism go together what do you think about that I think that they go together because the the root of both of them is control I think pes pessimism is um, control in disguise. You know, if I can not get my hopes up and assume this isn't going to work, then I can control how I feel. 
then I can make sure that I don't feel sad. Then I can make sure that I'm not disappointed. Then I can make sure of X, Y, Z. And so I think it just still goes back to control. Um, And I don't know if you guys know this, but research shows that if you let yourself get your hopes up, or if you stay pessimistic, the level of pain is still the same. I totally believe that. And so with my clients who are experiencing infertility, um, I've, I've shared this with them and I say, you know, you have to, you have to choose like, so for example, I have a client right now, she's, um, had a recent retrieval and recent transfer. And we've talked about like, how, how much do you get excited? Do you, do you look at how you would, do you start envisioning how you would tell your family? Do you not, do you start thinking baby names? Do you not? And, you know, they're trying to navigate that. Like they want to be excited and they want to get their hopes up, but they're so scared. So they say things like, well, but I know that it may not work. And I know that even if I do get a positive, you know, something still could happen. And so they're always like mitigating their excitement with these statements. And it's a coping mechanism. They're coming across as pessimistic because they're trying to control their hurt and pain, but it doesn't matter because it's not, it's not genuinely how they feel in their hearts and their heads. They're like, this is going to be it. And I'm going to tell my family in this way. And so what I told a recent client was, I said, Hey, here's statistics on, it's the same amount of pain. You choose how you want to go about this. If I were you, I might have that transfer and touch your belly and make your husband touch your belly and talk to the baby and daydream about how you tell your family. If the pain is going to be like, let's say it doesn't work or you have a miscarriage. If the pain is the same, why not at least like live in a delusional world right now and just enjoy it while it lasts. Sure. And yeah. I don't know if that's the right answer, but. But I think it at least offers them a perspective. Mm-hmm. Like, isn't that part of what they need is just like I need some perspective on how I can move through this and they get to choose the mm-hmm. way that they do that but I do think I think social media has so much to do with this I feel like IVF on social media has become this constant barrage of cautionary tales like um there's a sea of people with a, a million different kinds of negative outcomes at various stages and, and you know now it's also public and if you if you follow mm-hmm. one IVF person you end up being fed all of them and it's just an endless stream of bad outcomes for a lot of people and I just think that amplifies people's need to pull back and it seems like I, I mean mm-hmm. 10 and 12 years ago when I was treating IVF but it was still pretty side table it wasn't real public it was still pretty quiet and nobody was talking about it on social media people did not have near the same amount of anxiety about it they were more like hmm this is interesting i'm doing this thing this is what my doctor said to do okay we'll see what happens and they were like cool you know they weren't yeah completely distraught from the moment they began and i think over time yeah, like the rhetoric has changed. And so IVF is this weird thing. Because again, we talk about like, they kind of sell it to you like it's a cure-all, but it's also now like, we know that it's not a Mm cure-all. And so now it's terrifying because it's not a Mm cure-all. And I don't know, I just feel like the whole emotional tone around IVF has changed a lot. But it's really amplified the pessimism aspect. Well, I think too, in social media, when it comes to IVF, like you don't get likes 
Like, people are there for the tragedy. Right. You know, it's like watching, we had this conversation mm-hmm. the other day, it's like watching, like, trash TV, kind of. Right. Like, or rubbernecking. Like, yeah. the worse it is, the more you're yeah. like, oh my god, I'll watch this video all day. Right. I'll like, I'll share, I'll send it to somebody. But when you say, like, yay, this is great, people are like, oh, cool, good for you. And that's it. Unfollow. Mm-hmm. Unfollow. You know what I mean? Or, like, yeah, right, success. This for is sure. triggering. I can't watch this anymore. Yes. Like, well, and that's how I always was. And this sounds terrible, but it's like, if you were, I always, this is dumb, but I always feel like I'm in a club. And yeah. then there's like the happy mom, mom club. And I'm in the like really dark prison club. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if someone left my club, well, I don't like you anymore. Like, yeah. I don't like you. You're not, you're not my people anymore. And it's so irrational. It's all emotion. It's not logic. They could have tried for five years and finally had their success, but because it wasn't seven like me, because right. they got it before I did, totally. they now were in the happy mom club and you're not in my club. You're not my person. Unfollow. Yeah. Well, and then go back to your like religion talk, like how come those people's prayers were answered before mine? Exactly. I don't get mm-hmm. it. Like what is so special mm-hmm. about them that makes them special mm-hmm. enough to where they got what they asked for when they asked for mm-hmm. it? Like mm-hmm. it's a and whole then, level of trauma and torture. It is. And then even connecting that back to perfectionism. And remember the root of perfectionism is self-esteem it's almost then like reaffirming see there must be something about me I'm not good enough I'm not deserving enough God doesn't think I'm going to be a good mom what if I'm really not a good mom what if me and my husband are going to get divorced one day and I don't know it and so I'm not going to be blessed with this child it like almost reaffirms all of this low self-esteem and these fears that you already had without before you were even trying to conceive and then you go through this process and it's like oh that just confirms your fears you're really not good enough you're not going to be a good mom like there's something wrong with you oh my gosh you're so right though that's a lot then there's that other weird club which you're a member of molly yeah which is you were able to have this one miracle baby but you weren't able to have as many as you wanted Mm -hmm. and like you said Mm -hmm. you still have infertility so you're kind of straddling right. both worlds. Like you're still on well, the I suffering am because, end, but you're in the yeah. happy mom's club. And so like, do you go to the party or do you like, do you, you know what I mean? Right. No. When and it's we not even I'm in the about, happy mom's club. Go ahead. Oh, when we were talking about starting this whole thing, we were doing some um, in-person support group things. And somebody contacted me and she was like, I would really love to come to the support group, but I, I had a baby and I feel like it'd be inappropriate. And we had to have like a real mm. conversation about who's allowed to come to an infertility support group. Yeah. And I just think yeah. that's it is, a real bizarre place. It is because there, there's so many different like layers to all of this because I am in the happy moms club, but I'm also in the I'm still infertile. I can't get pregnant on my own. I just went through IVF. I had a miscarriage, but I'm also in the happy mom's club, but I'm like, but he's not actually my DNA. You all had your own babies. You all get to look at your child and go, oh, look, here she has my eyes or, oh, she looks just like my husband or things like that. And I don't have that. And it's not that it really like bothers me. Like my son feels like mine. Like he feels like mine, but I'm every day. I'm very much aware that I'm like still in a different club. Like almost every day, everywhere I go, people go, Oh, who does he look like? Or what does he, where does he get his curls from? And I'm like, I don't like, I don't know how to answer that. Yeah. I don't, how much do I want to go into detail? Like, and so sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't know. (laughs) And how, like, and I just, I am reminded. 
how will that come up for him so, in the way that you explain so, the world and your family dynamic? Like that's a whole yeah. course of it action is. that you and have to start considering. It is. We purchased um, before he was born some really cute children's books um, that they're honestly adorable. I, they're so cute. But like one is like um, they're chocolate chip cookies, Mr. and Mrs. Baker. And they keep baking like their cookie dough and it's like not working. It's not baking properly. And the neighbors have abundance of cookie dough. So they give them their cookie dough and they bake them and have little cookie babies. <laughs> I <laughs> love like, that. So, <laughs> it is adorable. And it's like rhymy and I ball my eyes out every time. Oh. We have another one about like little snap peas. I don't remember what that one is. Um, so I have like three books that talk about, you know, how, um, Oh, the one was on flowers. They like were planting these flowers and their flowers went bloom. So they got seeds from like some friends. And so I think our plan right now is to like kind of have those books be a part of our routine. And so he knows of those books. And then I think, I don't know, as he gets older, having conversations. And I think it's, it's so weird that I was pregnant because it adds, I think, just a layer of confusion right. for children because because adoption is obviously not like a new concept but it's like someone else had you and then we raised you but it's like well I actually had you but we took mm -hmm. some cells from some other people like how do kids even conceptualize that I'm not really right. sure. sure all I know is we're going to be open from day one and always hopefully have like certain uh, vocabulary and you know embryo adoption and um, I don't know have these terms open in our house so it's not like a new concept when he's like 10 years old but it's it's so different it feels very unique I don't know anybody else who did embryo adoption I yeah. know I mean people do traditional adoption and I know some people who did like an egg donor but their kids aren't old enough so I don't even really have a lot of like guidance yeah. on how to do that it's just such a different world the embryo adoption thing it is I think a lot of people though if if their child looks enough like them like it's a mm -hmm. nuclear family but I think there's a lot of people who just sort of are pretty quiet about it like it's so overwhelming yeah to try to figure yeah. out how to do that that they just let it pass them by and then yeah. the kids end up finding out in the wrong way or as they're much older definitely it's I don't I'm yeah. not saying that there's a right way to do it but I can just imagine right. as a parent like you're saying, when people ask you those questions, you're like, gosh, he's mm -hmm. going to have these kind of questions. Mm -hmm. How am I yeah. going well, to handle that? Definitely. And you know, what's really ironic. I don't know what you guys think, but every day people tell me he looks like me every he day. Does look like, you. like, I don't <laughs> think that we have like the exact same features, but my hair is like naturally like a strawberry blonde and his hair is strawberry blonde. He has blue eyes, very full lips. I mean, like our features are very similar. I got on a plane a couple of weeks ago and literally walked on the plane and the flight attendant goes, oh, he's just a spitting image of you. And so there, <laughs> there is the irony in all of that, that people do say he looks like me. And I like, I don't know, it, it feels good to hear that. It just feels good to hear that. I feel like all of that is so complicated. And I don't know, when did embryo adoption really become a thing? Like how long has that been? Obviously it's been a thing, but like, I feel like we're just now really hearing more about it in the last few years, um, right? I remember I had a client, she, um, I had a client, she went through IVF, I want to say 15-ish years ago, 
and it didn't work. She ended up having a hysterectomy. And back then she knew of embryo adoption, but it was Mm. like very like not common. And so I saw her, you know, maybe five years ago. And she said to me, this was like five years ago, Hey, they have these things called like snowflake babies where it's other people gone through IVF and their embryos are frozen somewhere and you can adopt them and like have them. And this is my response. Are you No, I don't want someone else's baby. I don't want to raise someone else's child. No, I want my own. I was like offended that she even suggested this for me Mm. and I'd never heard of it. And now here we are. I have a embryo adopted baby. Um, So you just never know until you go through it. So she knew of this so, so, so long ago, but even people in the IVF world today, when I tell them that it was an embryo adoption, even they're kind of surprised and even they're not familiar with it. So I don't feel like it's had much attention at all until recently. And even, even a lot of people today have never even really heard of it. Maybe that's also because there really aren't that many. Like you can't publicize something where there's going to be this mass of people who want access to it and there's no product you know like there's not lots of embryos sitting around that are up for adoption they're they're like Mm -hmm. kind of hard to get to sometimes so Mm -hmm. maybe that's why maybe clinics just don't really facilitate that conversation because they don't have anything to offer you Mm -hmm. and i think there's a lot of stipulations Mm -hmm. too you know like some couples are very particular about the kind of family that even if it is an anonymous Mm -hmm. donation like we don't mm-hmm. want them in this state. We don't want, a, even if they mm-hmm. would fit our profile otherwise, mm-hmm. maybe they don't qualify because they're in the same state or yeah. for whatever other reason. Like, I, I know that they do have some stipulations. Yeah. So I don't mm-hmm. think that it's as readily available. And then, you know, you think about the yeah. whole abortion thing and all of that. And, you know, like a lot of the, very catholic narrative specifically is that well we can't just they don't want discarded embryos or they don't want Mm -hmm. they think that that's happening a lot and yes it does happen but it's not happening i don't think at the rate that people think it's happening right like i don't know that's just my personal experience Mm -hmm. with it yeah um and there aren't just tons of embryos sitting around waiting to be adopted right now no it's really interesting so molly do you see a lot of people now that are infertility patients just because of your personal experience did that did you become one of those Mm -hmm. natural magnets where people are like i want to see her because she's been where i am yeah yeah because prior to me going through all my problems i had maybe like uh, two couples um and that really wasn't why they were coming to me. It was like a part of their story. I hadn't had a lot of experience with it. Um, and then I think since going through all of my experience, people are drawn to me. And oftentimes it's kind of word of mouth because they're going through this and someone's like, oh, my therapist also went through it. Or my friend, you know, sometimes yeah. it's like a friend of one of my friends or a cousin of one of my clients or something like that. And so um, a lot of people are coming to me for that. Um, and so- it's really interesting. Like I feel so honored to be able to sit in that with them, but it's also really hard because I've been there and I know the pain and I just want it fixed for them. And it's really, it's really hard. It's very emotional. I know, I don't know about um, other people, but for some reason, my 
my struggles with infertility, it was hard for me to like want to talk to anybody other than other people who'd gone through it. If I was having problems with my husband or if I was having other issues, I could, I didn't need a friend who also was having problems with their husband. Like for some reason, I didn't need that, that sameness. I didn't need that shared experience, but there's something about infertility that like, unless you've been through what I've been through, like I can't talk to you. And so I do think, uh, I hate to even, I don't, I don't hate to even go there. I'm not grateful for my experience, but there is, there, there is good. There, there's ways your story helps other people. And so I do feel like there is good coming from what I've been through because I do, I really can provide, I think, comfort insight, and validation and insight more than other people. Like even one of my clients recently, I was like, are our sessions helpful? Because like, I can't fix this for you. I can't, I can't tell you magic words that make you go, Oh, I have so much more peace now, or I can accept this, you know, like, and I can't, I don't know. I can't fix it for you. And that's me like being insecure and like wanting, wanting to help and take away their pain so bad. And she was like, yes, like you're the only person who like gets it. You're the only person I can talk to. And so, um, even though like I'm honored, I still feel like, Oh, is this like, am I even doing enough? Like, how do I help you? Right. I think that's amazing. As somebody that went to several therapists trying to find help just for infertility and had actually pretty terrible experiences with them, um, with every single one of them that I went to, obviously I couldn't go see you because you're my friend and yeah. I just call you to go to lunch and stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, mean I would be happy to pay. It's, of course. You know I mean? okay. it's just different. Um, yeah. But I went to several and it was, I mean, literally weird experiences and every single one of them and I really Mm. realized there's so much value in having a therapist and I mean it's one in six now women people go through this to having therapists that specialize in infertility or that really understand Mm -hmm. the process because I do think that it's such a different experience Mm -hmm. even my mother-in-law is a therapist and we had a moment with her where she was like I had no idea that this is the level yeah. of pain that you guys are yeah, feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And before I went through this, I will never forget this. I had a couple who were going through IVF. Oh, I like dying inside even telling you the story. But I asked all the questions that today, if someone were to ask me these questions, I would probably punch them in the face. Oh. I asked, you know, w- like, well, would you consider adoption? And, you know, I don't, I, ju- I just asked all these questions in an effort to be supportive and to, um, I don't know, help them in the best way I could. And they ended up going through IVF, their second transfer worked. They went through IVF, um, looked happily ever after. And then I started trying and several years in, I saw her at Target and I read up to her and I was like I have to apologize everything I said to you in our therapy sessions are the things that make me want to hit people they make me feel so invalidated they make me hate everybody and I said all those things to you and I am so so sorry and so I think um it I mean it, it just changed everything for me um and how I approach maybe just clients in general how I approach yeah. things I don't know about. Yeah. Um, yeah. But especially, you know, my my clients who are experiencing infertility, like it just, that experience, like um, I'm kind of friends with her today. She will tell you 
that I ran up to her in Target, like in tears, apologizing. Do you find it's better to see the couple or do you primarily see just the female or a little both? I primarily see the female. Um, I think, I think couple work is important when or if the husband is struggling with empathy is struggling with compassion is struggling with maybe how emotional she is and he's not necessarily on the same page um so i've had some couple sessions where i've basically had to tell the husband like you don't understand but your goal is not to understand so your response to her is not based on your feelings or your understanding your response to her is completely like what she needs to hear in that moment and nothing else it's not about what you think or how you feel because a lot of men i don't know about other people's experience this was the experience of my husband for years he was like mr optimistic it's gonna happen no it's gonna happen and it wasn't this time it'll be one time and it's all in god's timing and um, like I would start my period and we were supposed to go to a wedding the next day. Well, guess what? I'm not going to the wedding cause I'm at home sobbing and in a dark place. And he just like could compartmentalize so much more where he can be kind of sad and disappointed, but then like want to go live life. And so a lot of times the men I see are just like, not, they haven't their, their discouragement, their hopelessness, their sort of trauma from it hasn't, is not the same place. Hasn't, hasn't happened yet. And so a lot of times I'm kind of coaching him on when she says this, you say this, when she says this, you do this. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. You know, your words of encouragement, like it's okay, babe, it's going to happen. It's not helpful. It is mm -hmm. not helpful. Don't say those words. And so if I can get the husband in a better place of like uh, empathy and compassion and being more supportive, a lot of times they're just not as interested in coming. And I don't even know that the wives necessarily want them to come. So I would say like 95% of the time I'm seeing the woman because, you know, as we all know, most likely, or she's going through the procedures and the treatments right. and the she's surgeries the and she's a patient. She's counting down the days till her period. She's counting down the days till her transfer. She's you know, another friend is just, just got pregnant and, you know, oh, it's another Christmas without a baby. Um, so I think that my, that's, that's, I mean, yeah, that makes total sense. I was going to say one of my favorite podcasts, um, the egg whisperer, Dr. Amy, she's in the mm -hmm. Bay area. And she said, one of the things that she started doing with her couples for like the last year now she implemented was the first question she gets is on like a scale of like percentage one to 100 do you think that you're going to be together in a year like that's mm. the first question she asks her couples and she says it's completely changed the way that she approaches her IVF patients now because it tells so much and she says sometimes like the woman will be like 100% and the man, the man will be like or the partner will be like 30% if this doesn't wow. work. And it's like, if this doesn't work, do you think that you're still going to be together? And it's just, wow. and that can help her then navigate like, hey, you need to go see a therapist. Mm. You need to do couples uh -huh. counseling to make sure that you guys are on the same page. Like, and I thought that was so telling because I, I just, I mean, yes, it really tries your relationship. It really does. Um, it really does. Just as men and women, we process things so differently just in small day-to-day -day things so when it comes to big things we process so differently and the level of desire is often the same like my husband after our like fourth miscarriage he was like okay I'm done I can live happily ever after with you and the dogs 
And I was like, no, that is not what I signed up for. And he probably would have had moments of sadness, but like he could have like, he could have lived. I couldn't have lived. Like I'm telling you, I would have died. I would have died. Um, And so our level of desire is different. Our level of like resiliency, like I'm telling you, I'm a psychopath. I would go through IVF 100 times. I would do it 100 times. Maybe I would eventually get to a place the way I say I'm done, but that hasn't happened. After four retrieval or four retrievals and eight transfers and five miscarriages, I'm like, let's go. Like our our resiliency and our stamina is just different. And so men and women um, going through this is really hard. Yeah, that's a lot. I can't imagine. I don't know. That already feels like so many. I can't. When you put it in those number terms, I can't imagine doing that. You know, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not no, saying it's right? a good thing. It's um, <laughs> probably unhealthy, you know, um, that. That's that, that overachiever. Like, I yeah, that do I can't this expect. until I get where I want to be. Yes. Yes. And I plan my life to, I, I, I compromise. Okay. I don't have to have four kids. Like I want, I'll take two. And in my mind, there's a boy and a girl and um, it's not over. Like it's not over. And um, I think it's, you know, people people have said to me, oh my gosh, like your drive and your like um, perseverance is so amazing. And I've said, you, you should not be impressed by this. Like this is unhealthy. And I have prayed endless times. Like if I'm not meant to have kids, take this desire away. If I'm not meant to have kids, give me peace, take this desire away. And it just hasn't happened. So it's not like entirely a good thing it, it's a lack of acceptance it's a lack of giving up control it's a lack of I don't know what would you say oh, to oh, it's a something patient, what would you say to a patient that said that to you like one of your clients was going through that idea like how would you advise that mm-hmm. person I would say that like if that desire is in your heart it's okay to pursue that but it can't cost you what you have it can't cost you your family. It can't cost you your marriage. It can't cost you the joy that you could be having right now. Right. Um, I think that's something. So, I think that's a really prevalent point because I think that there is so much joy that's lost when you're going through IVF. There is just, it is so hard to find joy in the process. Yeah. I think about myself and how much of my life I've had to alter because of IVF. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't go to that wedding out of town because I'm having a retrieval, you mm-hmm. know, two weeks before that, I'm going to be starting stems. I can't do this. Like, well, and for me, you know, obviously I've been pregnant seven times now. Like I can't, I can't like, I think into the future and I'm like, well, maybe I won't be able to go to that because if this next transfer works, then I would be due to have a baby then. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to plan for that trip up there because mm-hmm. I'm an insane person and everything I'm doing is wrapped around mm-hmm. whether or not I'm going to have a baby. And I just feel like it's yeah. that whole thing has taken so much joy out of my life. Yeah. And I don't like and, that. And, and it does, but like, I, I don't know how you feel, Bryant, but like, if I look back, there's nothing could have made me feel joy in those moments. Like yeah. nothing could have a, a, a shift in perspective. If Molly today, I could go talk to Molly back then. Like nothing would work because yeah. when like your soul is so hurt and so sad, 
there's no pulling yourself out of that. And so that's, what's hard when I, as a therapist, I am working with clients as I see it so clearly, cause I am on the other side. I am in the happy mom club and I see so much life that I missed and yeah. so many things I didn't go to. And even the things I went to, I'm like going to the bathroom and crying. Cause I just, I can't be present. I can't be there. Everybody else has kids and I'm the only one who doesn't like, there's yeah. nothing I could do about it. So even as I'm working with people, I can say, Hey, you have this thing coming up and there's going to be all these people there with kids. How do you find a, a moment of joy? How do you find something good? I, I can try but when your soul and heart is so sad. There's just nothing. I think that can help you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's really hard. I can't imagine what it would be like to be in your shoes in that situation. Like how do you advise somebody to do something that you know fully well is a completely personal experience. Yeah. I don't know. That's yeah. Yeah. I have to, I have to let go of outcomes, yeah. which is control, yeah. you know, like I always say that like my infertility clients and like maybe my grief clients are the mm -hmm. hardest in terms of, I can't fix. And yeah. normally I can fix things. If you come to me with a marriage issue, as long as the people do what I say, um, I can fix it. <laughs> if you need communication, if you need work on your communication, if you have anxiety, if you have depression, if you have low self-esteem, like all of these things are fixable if people are willing to do the work, but grief and infertility is just like one area where I'm like, I am here and that is kind of it. And I have to let go of an outcome. I have to let go of an outcome of them either getting pregnant or them going, you know what? I've reached that place where I'm at peace with whatever happens. Like I, I can't help them. And again, it's like this honor that they're coming to me and I'm their safe person more than anybody else. But because I care, it, it's really hard to just like sit and be in it with them. Because I have a little bit of PTSD from all of this. And sometimes it like reminds me of my own experiences. And it takes me back to that dark prison that was really scary. Because aren't those two things so similar though? Grief and infertility. I mean, aren't they the same almost emotions? At least for me, they have that. I don't know. Maybe that's just my own personal experience, but I feel like the healing process from infertility has been very similar to my grief process with like losing my dad. Like, I think it's been very parallel, which sounds insane to say out loud because I feel like it almost minimizes the impact my dad had on my life. It doesn't. I think it just shows the impact that this infertility journey has had on me. Mm -hmm. Dad's up here and somehow mm -hmm. something else has been able to be that high in regard to my life. Yeah. I don't know. It's really interesting. No, I think it's so similar because I think it's, I mean, infertility is grieving mm -hmm. how you thought life would be, grieving what life should have been, grieving um your body is it's is not the same anymore, grieving changes in your marriage, grieving. I don't know. I feel like I lost a lot of friends, but not in like the way that it sounds. It's um I was trying to have kids, nobody else was, and then they all started having kids. And they had more kids and now their kids are all in school. So I like, feel like I lost an entire group of friends because yeah. their kids all go to school together. Their kids are the same age. So they do play dates and they see each other at school pickup and they do all these things where like, I'm at home with a baby. Like I'm not the same season of life as my friends. So I think that just infertility is so much grief. It's, it's loss. It's longing. It is, you know, wishing that things were different. I think it's so similar. It is. And then I think about, I mean, and then on top of it, if you're a recurrent loss patient and you're grieving a loss of 
your babies, you know, I mean, so it's, Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's all the same and it's all just really, really hard. <laughs> okay, Molly, parting words of wisdom uh, for the people that are mm -hmm. you know, the perfectionist type A achieving mm -hmm. mental mm -hmm. breakdowning, compulsive, obsessive, keep going at all costs. Mm -hmm. Anything to say? Um, it's a good question. Um, I think one thing I don't, though, I'll give you a second to think about it. And I just wanted to say, I think one thing as a witness person watching people is like, you kind of just have to give them permission to do it. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that's hard. Like a husband who's ready to be done and a wife that's not at some mm -hmm. point, like she just needs permission to keep pursuing it. And mm -hmm. I don't know, I guess somebody has yeah. to come to their own natural yeah. stopping point, wherever mm -hmm. that is, as hard as it is for all of us to watch and see the damage, mm -hmm. it's really mm -hmm. challenging to tell someone, this is not good for you, you have mm -hmm. to stop. Yeah. It's not yeah. Anybody yeah. can tell and I, absolutely. And I want to answer your question, but you just made me think of something else. I think a lot of what is important when you find the right therapist that you're going through infertility is they do give you permission to have all the crazy irrational emotions and feelings in a safe space. Mm -hmm. So like, I know for me, when I would find out someone was pregnant, the little kid who's not getting what they want inside of me was they don't deserve it. They didn't even know if they wanted kids. This isn't fair. I hate them. I'm never talking to them again. But when I say that out loud to my husband, my husband's like, what is wrong with you? And so I always try to give my clients that permission. I, I have a friend, not a client, a friend who's about to go through her first retrieval next month. And she was going to go out um, voting for 4th of July or something. And she, she found out two of her friends were announcing that they were pregnant. And I went, and so she's texting me about it. I'm like, oh my gosh, can I cuss on here? Yes. <laughs> Okay. Okay. I, I'm like, oh my gosh, those bitches. How dare <laughs> they? How dare them? You know what? You have permission to just hate them for a while and not talk to them for a while. And she was like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for understanding and for like letting me be like that, you know? And so I think like we, like as a therapist, part of my goal is just giving people permission to have all of the really right. crazy irrational thoughts and feelings, allow them, but, but, but remind them like, you won't feel like this forever. You feel like this right now and it's okay but in a month or two, you won't feel like this and your friendships will be okay. And yeah. you know, your relationships will be okay. And so I think that idea of permission is really important in this world in general. Um, but Aaron, to kind of answer your question about what I would say to someone, these high achiever controlling people going through this is, um, I think having a sense of control is, can be a good thing. But I think that if you're going through this process, your control has to be on what you can do to make your body healthy and not about an outcome. Mm -hmm. And so I have been through so much and, and I don't want to, this is not medical advice, but mm -hmm. I have done it all. I've cut out coffee, I've cut out alcohol, I've cut out sugar, I've done all these things and then had like no embryos. Right. And then I've done this and done this and I've done this and I've gotten pregnant about how to miscarriage. And then I've, I've, done, I've done it all. And then with my son, I'm telling you, I drank a bottle of wine the night before my transfer. I didn't change anything. I was the most stressed I'd ever been in my life to the point where my husband sent an email to someone 
using the F word and screaming at them and telling them that they were going to cause me to have a miscarriage because I'd never been so stressed out of my life. Never been so stressed in my life, drank a bottle of wine the night before my transfer, got pregnant, stayed pregnant, had a great healthy pregnancy. And so I just think we can try to control things, but the control can't be in the outcome. It can be like, you know, I'm going to choose to be healthy, make my body healthy, because that's just what's good for me. And, um, and I'm going to benefit for that either way, but it can't be because I'm, it's going to work or because right. I'm going to have a baby. It has right. to be, you just do it. Cause it's something you can do. Cause at this point, I feel like either your eggs are healthier. They're not either your uterus is healthy or it's not like things are just going to work or it's not. So kind of do the best you can in the small ways, but you have to relinquish some sort of control of the outcome. You know, like my, my last miscarriage, it had been um, two years since I'd had a transfer, which is the longest I've ever gone. I was going like every couple months having a transfer. And when it came to my transfer, I was like, wait, am I supposed to, when am I supposed to drink pomegranate juice? When am I supposed to drink pineapple juice? And I started like, do I even remember how to do this? And then I got pregnant, I had a miscarriage. And for one second, my brain went, well, maybe you didn't drink the juices on the right days. Oh, and I had to stop myself. Right. I had to stop myself and go, no, 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 no like these embryos weren't tested that embryo just maybe wasn't the right embryo and also right. like sometimes people have sex and they don't get pregnant sometimes it just doesn't work and I had to really catch myself from trying to blame myself as a way to control it like right if I had done then done this then this you know and so I'm kind of rambling but I think in in theory you can control the little things you can control, but do them because it feels like the right thing to do. Do them because it's you giving your effort, but we've got to let go of the outcome of how pomegranate juice is directly related to having a baby. We've got to let go of that. You're so right about Thank that. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been like, the best conversation. And I wish we were like sitting around a table drinking wine all together, not on a Zoom call. <laughs> I know. Well, we can finish this conversation maybe over wine in a few days. <laughs> That's right. That sounds good. I'm sure if we really tried, we could figure out another box that we could unpack on a podcast. Hey, I think definitely. I am happy to talk. I always joke that like I'm the only person who likes going to the doctor or likes going to the dentist because I just sit here and I, I listen all the time. And then when I go to these people, I'm like, oh, you want to hear about me? I get to talk now. So I'm happy to talk. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Molly, for joining of us course. today. You're always just so wonderful and a bright ray of light in everyone's life. And I'm mm. just really excited about Well, that's yours. nice to hear because that's not how it feels internally. So <laughs> it does feel that way. I promise you. <laughs> it feels that way. Um, yeah. Well, well thank, thank you guys. And thank you for everything you're doing. You guys are amazing. And this is just so amazing. And I just feel so honored to be included in any of it so thank you guys well we love you yeah we appreciate your cheerleader love you yes, yes. the protected space podcast is hosted by aaron attaway and bryant liggett and is brought to you by the fertility resort to learn more about us head over to the fertilityresort.com and give us a follow on all social platforms at protected space pod